The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 151 of the coronavirus crisis. Breaking news tonight. One big state says fans can attend sporting events and two major U.S. cities take big steps towards reopening. Starting June 1st, child cares, botanical gardens, outdoor museums and historical sites can open. Two of this country's biggest cities making plans to reopen. In Brooklyn, I'm seeing probably... 40% people wear a mask. With restrictions. Plus, another biotech moves forward with plans for a virus-killing pill. The man behind it is here tonight. And the blueprint for big changes on campus this fall. This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And welcome. Good to have you with us on this Thursday night. We start with a decision by Texas Governor Greg Abbott tonight to allow fans at outdoor professional sporting events up to 25 percent capacity. We bring in Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former commissioner of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, this is a big, big step, especially in a state like Texas. How do you feel about this decision tonight? Well, look, everything's a risk. Sports venues done outside are lower risk than indoor venues. They haven't brought back spectators yet in the indoor venues. Um, they're only bringing back 25% capacity. So I think they're taking reasonable steps, reasonable precautions to lower the risk. But there's going to be a risk bringing together large groups. Um, the risk isn't so much as people standing in the stadium itself, but coming in and out, um, congregating at stairways and things like that. So if they can figure out ways to move people in and out efficiently, not have them congregate, not have them aggregate in small, in, in large groups... Um, this can be done in a lower risk way. We see Disney reopening the theme parks. I, I'm sure Disney's going to do a very good job of keeping people dispersed across that park. So we'll see how good of a job the Texas stadiums are able to do. But, you know, in closing, I'll just say this is against the backdrop of cases going up in Texas. Um, the cases are going up. They're testing more. So they're capturing more cases. But hospitalizations also appear to be going up. So they're not completely out of the woods yet over there. How do you feel then about this this whole move towards reopening and maybe a, a, a checkup, if you will, on, on where we are? We're making awfully big decisions tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, as we just mentioned, this one in Texas at a time where you say hospitalizations are still going up. Are you entirely comfortable with where we are? Well, some of the some of the increases are from the reopening, and we expected that. We knew that as we reopened, we were going to see a bump up in cases. I'm still hopeful that there'll be a seasonal effect here, and as we get into the warmer months, um, we'll see that be a backstop against spread. And I think things done outdoors are safer than things done indoors. So we need to be circumspect about reopening purely entertainment venues that are indoors, things like casinos or sports events indoors, where you're getting groups together indoors. And so. This is a more prudent step if you want to restart sports activities like this. 
Um, but everything's a risk. And every time we reopen, there's going to be some consequences for it against the backdrop of a virus that's highly contagious and hasn't fully gone away. I think the net consequence here isn't that we have a big upswing in June, July and August. I think the net consequence is that we're going to have this slow burn through the summer. We're still going to have infection. And it sets up a risk for the fall. And so we just need to be mindful of that and be ready for that to mitigate the potential for spread in the fall. Been talking so much about, you know, venues opening up and fans, whether they're going to be allowed or, or not, and the, the safety and security of the fans. How concerned are you, though, tonight about the players themselves? And I know they're going to be tested a lot, but we also know the tests aren't 100 percent reliable. How should we be thinking about that part of the equation as we move forward? Well, the players are at higher risk because they're, they're, they're close together. They're coming in proximity with each other in locker rooms together. And there's really no way to create physical separation for players who are you know, playing together in a game like basketball or football or baseball. I think it's possible to create a protective bubble around the players and to bring good testing in, test them regularly. And so you can dramatically reduce the risk. So, you know, in a confined environment with a confined number of people, a group of people that are going to be together, you can create a bubble around them and dramatically lower the risk. It's more of the, the venues where you have people coming and co- going that you can't account for, and you don't know the background prevalence of the, of the disease in the places where they're coming from. So you think of things like theme parks or even uh, sports stadiums. That's going to bring together a lot of people that you don't know what their risk is. You don't know what the prevalence was in the communities where they're coming from. So it's harder to get a handle around that. I'll ask you to stay with me, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. I bring in now Mark Gannis. He's the co-founder of the sports marketing powerhouse Sports Corp. Mark, it's good to have you back on our program. I'm wondering how you're thinking about this and maybe more importantly, how you think the leagues themselves are thinking about these sorts of issues tonight. They've been thinking about these issues very deeply for more than two months now getting as much advice, medical advice, and scientific advice as they can, uh, and also trying to follow what's going on with the politicians, where different states are looking at things and different communities are looking at doing things in different ways. But what I can tell you, Scott, is there is a real strong interest, and it's going to happen, that sports is going to come back, whether you have fans in the stands or whether you don't. It is coming back, and it's likely to come back uh, uh, rather soon, this summer. And with the, uh, when it comes to things like the NFL in September, uh, you, could, you could count on it. The NFL is doing everything the right way. They're opening their facilities with tremendous amounts of protections, first for the staff, then for the, uh, for the players. So, uh, and they're going to do the same thing when it are, comes to the stadium. Those are interesting points you make. I'm just wondering how the league is going to feel about decisions like Governor Abbott's tonight. You are introducing a risk factor that you otherwise wouldn't have if stadiums were void of fans. Would the leagues just simply, do you think, prefer one uniform policy across the entire league for every city? You know, it's a great question, Scott, because what you prefer is one uniform policy across the country by the political leadership so that the leagues themselves don't have to make that choice. Uh, but, yes, there is discussion right now that uh, it may be the, uh, the best approach would be to have one uniform policy which is applied by the leagues for at least a certain period of time. And that could be no fans for a certain period of time. That is absolutely one of the options being looked at. It's tricky politically, obviously. Uh, there was an NFL owners meeting today uh, as well. I'm sure all of these issues are, are going to be discussed. You also have the issue of you know, the NFL, for example, doesn't want to be left behind as other uh, sports are moving towards uh, the goal line, if you will, whether it's the uh, N- NBA or the NHL, which seem to be, Mark, taking significant steps towards getting back on the playing field. 
Yes, absolutely. The NHL made some announcements. I think middle of next week we're going to hear the NBA make announcements. Baseball is stuck in this negotiating with the Players Association. A bad look for both baseball owners and the Players Association. Football has the great advantage of being a few months later for when the season will start. And every indication that I'm hearing right now is that the games will take place as scheduled, full 16-game season starting in early September. You mentioned, and lastly, we'll, we'll leave it after this question, the, uh, Major League Baseball, right? Here we are nightly. Yeah. In fact, last night we spoke with Gary Bettman, NHL commissioner. Here we are tonight talking mm-hmm. about the NFL progressing towards getting back on the field. He's talking about dropping the puck. Mark Lazary was on my program at noon today talking about jumping the ball again. And here we are talking about yep. Major League Baseball uh, bickering and spinning its wheels. What's the long-term fallout from that? Terribly dysfunctional relationship between the owners and the players. Uh, this it goes back generations. This is nothing new. And it's part of the reason why baseball's fan base keeps getting smaller and older. And the other sports have been really picking up uh, the pace in terms of the fans and the demographics. They've really got to find a way to work together, players and owners, in order for the future to, to, be, uh, to be better for baseball. Because we may end up in a situation this offseason where no players are signed to big money contracts because the owners are going to have no idea how much revenue they're going to be able to generate from their stadium operations. It's a terrible situation short term looks really bad to the fans and long term unless they find a way to get their act together they're both going to suffer we'll be following it we'll be back in touch with you as well that's mark gannis joining us tonight from sports corp another big story we're following tonight two of this country's biggest cities making comeback plans we have two reports tonight starting with contessa brewer on the situation in new york city contessa Scott, every region of this state is in the first phase of reopening except New York City, which typically accounts for some 5% of the nation's GDP. Mayor Bill de Blasio said today that he's hoping within the next couple weeks this we could see phase one reopening, and that could mean as many as 400,000 people returning to work. Already the subway service is increasing to accommodate more commuters Those would be people who work in retail, which would only be open for pickup or curbside delivery, manufacturing, construction, wholesale services, no restaurants or bars, though the city council is pushing to expand outdoor dining options, perhaps even closing down some streets amid reports that some businesses are ignoring state and city orders to stay closed. The mayor today warned the fines will start at $1,000 for those that reopen anyway. And he reiterated that people in public have to wear masks. New York's governor brought in two famous Brooklynites for his news conference to reiterate the message. The kids really aren't wearing a mask. Hipsters and yuppies walking around without a mask. I I go, what is it? Is it arrogance? And Governor Cuomo issued an executive order allowing businesses to deny entry to anyone who refuses to wear a mask, Scott. Contessa, thank you for that. That's Contessa Brewer reporting for us tonight. Meantime, on the West Coast, San Francisco making big strides of its own. Aditi Roy out there for us live tonight. Aditi. Hi, Scott. Good to see you. San Francisco Mayor London Breed laying out the details in which business will be able to open and also when. So let's take a look at that timeline right now. 
Starting on June 1st, we're talking about child cares, a lifeline for working parents, botanical gardens, outdoor museums, historical sites, those can open. Then on June 15th, we're going to be seeing most indoor retail, summer camps, professional sporting events with no spectators, and also private household indoor workers like housekeepers or nannies, as well as religious services. Also, non-emergency medical appointments will be open. On July 13th, we're going to be seeing indoor dining with some modifications, hair salons, barbershops, and real estate appointments. Only open houses will be allowed, appointment only. The last phase would, of course, involve schools, bars, nail salons, massage and tattoo parlors. Bree didn't lay out exactly when those would open. Now, San Francisco County has 2440 coronavirus cases. If you compare that number to the number of cases per 100 thousand people. That's lower than in other counties in California, including Los Angeles County, Santa Barbara and Riverside, but still higher than some of the surrounding counties. Mayor London Breed also adds that people are going to have to wear masks outside. Back to you. Aditi, appreciate it. Aditi Roy reporting for us tonight. Okay, Dr. Gottlieb, back to you. This is going to be the moment of truth. We're talking to the biggest cities in this country, San Francisco and New York City. How are you thinking about how this is going to go? Well, they're probably in better shape to start um, a staged reopening. New York's had a lot of infection. They have a high rate of, of background immunity now. So the rate of transmission is probably going to be lower in New York. But they were the city that led us into this epidemic. They were very hard hit, the hardest hit city by a wide margin. It's not a surprise that they're going to be slow to reopen. San Francisco is in pretty good shape. They were aggressive early, earlier than New York. Um, and they've been spared the worst of this, uh, this epidemic across the country relative to the initial indication of infection that they had. And so... Um, it's understandable that they're going to be reopening more aggressively or sooner than New York would. Worried about public transportation in a city like New York, or, or, or are you feeling okay about that tonight? I'm worried about public transportation. I mean, some of the incremental data shows that more of the spread is through respiratory droplets and, and contaminated shared surfaces and what we maybe first suspected early on. But we were worried about cities with public transportation at the outset of this. So were people in the administration. I think there's still a risk from shared contaminated surfaces. So you have to look at cities with mass transit systems that are widely used as being more vulnerable. And those systems need to be clean. They need to think differently about those systems. Um, there was a study out in the last week that showed that if 60% of people wear masks at 60% effective, you can effectively cut the r not the transmission rate, the rate of transmission below one, which means you're going to get rid of the epidemic. You have a declining epidemic. So if we can just get people to wear higher quality masks and more people to wear them, that would have a big impact. And that, in fact, is what happened in countries like South Korea and Japan and Singapore. The masks probably made a difference in those countries and China as well. Speaking on, on a study, there was one in The New York Times today I wanted to get your reaction to. It, it cast doubt tonight on the idea of herd immunity, said the number of infections is still in the single digits percentage wise in, in many places and that it needs to be 60 to 80 percent for actual herd immunity, because there is a growing debate about that idea tonight. Well, it's unclear what level you need for herd immunity. You probably need less than 60%. If the, if the trans, rate of transmission is two, so you get two new cases for every one case, you need 50% to get herd immunity. If it's three, then you need 60%. But it's probably the case that you need less than that because certain people just aren't susceptible to the virus, either because of genetic features or because they just don't go out a lot. Um, so you can get the herd immunity maybe around 40%. There's been some studies that show that. Now, that said... The overall exposure in the U.S. is probably 5%. Um, in Sweden, it's 5%. In France, it's 5%. In Spain, it's 5%. Seroprevalence studies have now shown that. In New York, it's probably 30%. It's at least 20%, and it's probably by the end of June going to be closer to 30%. 
the seroprevalence study that found that it was 20 percent was done in late April. And so it's grown since then. So some cities that have been hard hit have a higher rate of exposure. Paris is about 10 percent. Wuhan's about 10 percent. Stockholm's about 7 percent. But still below uh, what you would say perhaps would be still below. to the level yeah. of, of herd immunity. Stick with me once again. I want to cover another story tonight on another uh, biopharmaceutical uh, company fighting the virus tonight. CNBC's uh, farmer reporter Meg Terrell with us tonight uh, with Dr. Cedric Francois. He's the co-founder and CEO of Apellis. Meg? Scott, thanks so much. Cedric, thank you for being here with us tonight. You know, I want to start on a personal note. We heard that you actually had COVID-19 yourself a couple months ago and you've recovered. Tell us about what that experience was like. Yeah, it was uh, it was in March, actually very early on in uh, during the pandemic. And uh, it was it was scary. I mean, it was not, uh, not a fun experience. Now, I'm, I'm 47 years old, uh, so I had a relatively mild course of it. The first week was was especially uh, more like a flu. But then the second week, I went into that second phase that a lot of people talk about, where, um, you know, I I started desaturating and feeling much worse. But then thankfully, at around day 12, I was able to get out of it. That's great. And we're glad you're, you're feeling better and you're recovered now. And now you're actually applying your company's technology. You're testing one of your drugs uh, for some of the more severe effects that we see in some patients uh, with COVID-19. Tell us about this approach. So essentially, uh, you know, while we wait for vaccines to hopefully come around and help us, um, we need drugs that can help patients and reduce mortality in the late stages. So in other words, patients that end up in the hospital, uh, you know, that are at risk of dying. Uh, we have a lot of drugs that are in development, uh, not us. Our industry has a lot of drugs in development or on the market that could help with that so-called cytokinetic storm. And our approach falls within that category. So it is essentially something that uh, is designed to interfere in the very latest stages and try to improve uh, survival. So you're testing it in patients who have this severe respiratory failure. And what's really interesting about the approach is that it not only uh, could help with that uh, issue, but also the abnormal formation of blood clots, which does appear to be sort of an emerging problem uh, that people are recognizing that happens with these severe COVID-19 patients. And you've actually done some studies on that overactive immune response, seeing that your drug could potentially help with that, right? Yeah, that is correct. So this is the fascinating uh, kind of observation that we have, especially with people that end up, you know, dying from COVID-19, is that problem of what we call thrombotic microangiopathy, which are blood clots that form in the small blood vessels. Uh, and the, the complement system, which is this part of the immune system that we target with our compounds, seems to be very important in driving that clotting phenomenon. And so we have done already a study in patients with COVID-19 to evaluate what happens to this complement system while patients have the infection. And that led us to believe that uh, intervening there uh, may be of benefit. I know you're in the very early stages here, just starting your trial uh, in COVID-19 patients. But I want to ask you a question we're asking all CEOs, really, who are working in this space. You know, you're a relatively young company, no products yet on the market. What is your philosophy about if your drug does work, about profiting uh, from that work you're doing in this pandemic? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So I think that the, fir the first thing to see, and, and I've really witnessed this firsthand, is that um, you know the the vast majority of companies in biotechnology kind of locked arms and came together to try to do something here? Uh, you know, I've I've literally not heard the word profit fall once. 
Um, so I think it is, it is a unique opportunity for us as an industry to step forward and essentially, you know, help society get better here. Um, we feel and we want to be a part of that. Profit is not something that we've even thought about in this context. What we want to do right now is hopefully, uh, you know, help patients and, and, and reduce the mortality from this condition. Dr. Francois, it's Scott right. back in the studio. I have a quick question for you. Um, what form is this, is this drug actually in? Is it, a, it, is it an intravenous? Is it a pill? How would this be taken? So it's an intravenous therapy that is given to patients uh, in the hospital, typically in an ICU setting. Uh, again, kind of in the very late stages, patients who are at risk of dying and trying to, um, to, to bring them out of that cytokinetic storm that they are in. Interesting. We wish you well uh, with it. Thank you uh, very much for being here tonight, Meg. Of course, as always, our thanks to you as well, Meg Terrell. We'll bring in uh, Dr. Gottlieb once again. Dr. Gottlieb, we spent so much time uh, here talking about vaccines, but this is a therapeutic and this is an issue that we've been hearing about where the immune system essentially overreacts to fight the virus and then causes a whole host of other issues. What's your thought here? Right. And there's a number of drugs that are being looked at to intervene in this process. This is one drug that's in development. Um, there's some drugs on the market that work through a similar mechanism. This drug in, uh, impedes the complement cascade that then triggers that overwhelming immune response. It triggers the release of those cytokines. And it, it intervenes in a, a place in the complement cascade that's higher up than some drugs that are currently on the market that are also being tested for the same purpose. And so there's some available therapy right now in advanced clinical trials, phase three clinical trials, looking at trying to do a very similar thing here. So hopefully one or more of these therapeutics proves to be successful. Certainly hope so. All right, let's do some Twitter questions before we go. Have one tonight from Buzzstocks. Would you allow uh, your child to go back to her job at a local ice cream shop? It is indoors. What do you think? Well, look, if Food service is going to restart, you know, and people are going to be working in kitchens, working in food service. They need to take the right precautions. If they can, you know, distance at work, they can wear proper protective equipment. Be mindful of the interaction with customers. There's risk there as well. I would feel confident about it. But, you know, so much of the people who work in these industries, I feel they don't have the proper protective equipment. If we can get it to them and they can teach them how to use it, the risk is dramatically reduced. I have another question. How will we confidently know the durability of the vaccines approved given the warp speed trial time frame we're using? Well, the shorter answer is we won't. What we're going to do is look at the kind of immune response that the vaccines are generating and hope that that approximates the kind of response that you would get from the infection. So we're going to look at the vaccines if they generate sort of a comparable level of antibody response that people who have the infection get. We're going to assume that people who have the vaccines are going to get a comparable level of protection, which, which is about a year. I mean, you know, it's shorter for some people, longer for others. But we think that most people who recover from COVID probably have at least a year of immune protection based on the antibody response that they generate. This next question is interesting, particularly it plays to where we began our program tonight. The thought of people going back into public places and spaces and sporting events, etc. If temperature checks are really a useful measure to be taken for public events, given the delayed onset of symptoms, how, how would you deal with that? Well, they're not. I mean, we've looked at temperature checks in, in airports and found that they detect fewer than 25 percent of people who have the active infection. So a lot of people don't develop fevers. 
Sometimes people who are infected, you're not going to catch them at the point at which they're developing the fever. They're either pre-symptomatic or they maybe happen to not have a fever at that day or that moment. So they're not entirely effective. It's one layer of protection, but it's not foolproof. Jacqueline Bangs wants to ask you tonight, can we turbocharge research into how contagious, say, 4- to 18-year-olds are so we can learn if they can go back to school more normally? Yeah, we don't have good data on that. The best studies show that kids are probably about a third as susceptible as adults to coronavirus. So they, they get an infection, but at a, at a rate that's a third less, uh, at, at one third of what adults get the infection. Um, and so a lot of kids are probably getting infected, not becoming symptomatic. We missed an opportunity in Sweden to really answer this question because they continue to uh, send children to school in Sweden and we had an opportunity to study what the implications were of that, and we didn't. Lastly, here's another good one, and we, I don't think we've ever addressed this. Uh, if I received an early vaccine and later a better and more effective one becomes available, would I be able to get the better and more effective one? Vaccine? Um, probably not. Not after you receive one vaccine. It depends on what vaccine you're getting. Um, if you get like an adenoviral vector vaccine, you might not be able to get that vaccine again. So it's going to depend on what vaccine you're getting. Um, ultimately, we're going to have vaccines that probably become seasonal in this context. And so we're probably going to give them seasonally. You're a good sport, Dr. Gottlieb. We appreciate it. I know our viewers do as well. You be well. We'll see you again. Thanks a lot. All right. That's Dr. Gottlieb tonight. Uh, we're just getting started on the CNBC special report. Next up, a doctor being hired to make kids safer this fall by redesigning college campuses. He's sharing his blueprints for change. Plus, you won't believe the sneaky virus scams the FBI is uncovering. First, the USA on day 151 of the coronavirus crisis. horizon for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back on day 151 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. The House passed a bill aimed at giving small business owners more flexibility in how they spend the money received from the government's Paycheck Protection Program. Amazon says it will offer permanent jobs to 125,000 of the temporary workers hired to help with surging demand during the pandemic. And the Boston Marathon, which had been pushed from April to September, has been officially canceled for the first time ever. Well, free food was flowing to frontline medical workers at the beginning of the crisis. Let's just say it might not have always been the healthiest. Well, tonight, how restaurant chain Sweet Green is stepping up. You know, we're in the business of feeding people and connecting people to real food. And in times of crisis and at a time like this, it's never been more important. We quickly realized that if you look at the medical staff and the hospital staff and all these folks that jump onto the front lines right away to really help, 
you know, we felt like it was our duty to really show up and feed them. Within 48 hours, we were popped up in our first hospital. And pretty quickly that first week or two, we served 10,000 meals. We just put it out there saying, we're open to feeding hospital workers for free. Please connect us if you know uh, a team or a hospital that wants to be fed. And overnight, we got 11,000 incoming requests from different hospitals. We started this with just our own team, our own infrastructure, and really funding it, you know, free meals, 100% free meals to all these amazing heroes. And we've decided to really expand the program. And that's when we, we started talking with Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen. At a time like this, it feels really great to be able to do our part and give back to those on the front lines. That's the good folks at Sweet Green stepping up tonight. Well, the colleges and universities look to reopen in the fall. Many are rearranging space to enable social distancing. Dr. Robert Quigley is the senior vice president and regional medical director for International SOS. It advises companies and universities. He is back with us tonight. Dr. Quigley, it's good to see you again. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Getting more announcements of colleges, universities, other schools that will be in session in the fall. How different is is it going to look based on the work that you're doing? It's going to be a a real shock, I think, to those people that are returning and those people that can return to the campuses. And I think to that end, there needs to be some emphasis on psychological support made available for all of those coming back amongst all the other items that we are addressing in our efforts to accommodate those returning and risk mitigate on their behalf. Yeah, the, the scenery is certainly going to look differently. So we're going to put up some charts of yours, some blueprints, if you will, in the way that you've been working to advise universities. We're going to take a look at what a dorm room used to look like, a cafeteria, uh, a lecture hall, et cetera, and how the changes that you've initiated here may look uh, when people go back in the fall. Tell us about it. Sure. So again, as I've said before in this forum, we focus on the two measures that we know work, and that is the social distancing and the universal precautions. And unfortunately, with this particular population, i.e. the college-age students, there's always the challenge with compliance. So there clearly has to be very strict messaging throughout these three examples that you have in front of you, uh, the dormitory, uh, the lecture hall, and the cafeteria. And it's all about the flow of people, the use of uh, personal protective equipment, how to dispose of it, where to get it, and to ensure that there is constantly respect for the two-meter or six-foot social distance. And that's Mm -hmm. well illustrated if you look at the legend on the three uh, images that you project. I mean, I'll ask you, frankly, let's put up the one where we're looking at a a dorm room. Um, Can you have a a roommate in a dorm and, and be socially distanced? And what is the risk Uh, inherent in in all of that? Really good question. And as you see in the image that's there, it's a a very simple diagram that was formerly a room for two people. And there's an X on the second bed, which means that we do not recommend the sharing of a room. Even if there was enough square footage to social distance, you can imagine there would be a lot of sharing of materials within that room, desktops, doorknobs, Uh, bathrooms and so forth. So it's not advisable. So our recommendation has been, if one is to return to a dormitory, it's going to be single room occupancy. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's going to be a shock for for many. I'm wondering how colleges and universities are going to to deal with with, with that in terms of the the sheer numbers that they just have to deal with. Let's talk about a lecture hall. Um, I think all of us have been in, in in a packed lecture hall 
Um, here we are discussing issues every night, whether it's a movie theater, which is in the same sort of configuration, perhaps, of, of a lecture hall. How are we going to deal with that? Well, as I mentioned a few moments ago, a lot of it's going to be the flow of traffic. So there's an entry side and an exit side, and there's a place to collect a mask. If one doesn't have one, one should be wearing one when one is traversing across the campus, and there's a place to dispose of the mask. And you can see that the seats are separated such that they're able to be respectful of the two-meter, six-foot social distance. So the classrooms, as we knew them, will have less participants in the classroom. And that's why I don't want to downplay the significance of virtual teaching, which is still going to be a big part of the education of the college students coming back uh, in the fall, assuming the schools are going to open. And also keep in mind, there will be certain individuals that we consider medically fragile who won't be able to return to campus anyway for a variety of pre-morbid risk factors. In 30 seconds, can you tell me about cafeterias? Are, are children going to be able to sort uh, college students can be able to sit across from, from one another and, and have a meal together, or, or is that not advisable? They are, and on that image, uh, we demonstrate that they can. I think that's an important part of uh, maintaining socialization. Uh, we have it set up so that the food is actually collected outside of the room where one would sit, and the flow of traffic end is in one direction. They dispose of their crockery and cutlery in one place as they exit, again, picking up PPE and disposing of PPE as they enter and exit, as previously outlined. Interesting conversation. Dr. Quigley, I appreciate you coming back. We'll see you again soon, I'm sure. Our pleasure. All right, that's Dr. Robert Quigley joining us tonight. Here's what's coming up next. Next up, the FBI takes up coronavirus scams hitting Americans from coast to coast. Wait until you see what they're seeing. Plus, moving day in the age of a pandemic. We're back in two minutes. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Virus scams breaking out across the country. Tonight, what the FBI is seeing, how they're stopping them, plus getting hit with a pandemic just as your busy season begins. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. After stocks erased gains from earlier in the day, we give you a look at futures tonight. Let's take a look. It is early, of course. Right now, we would have a Friday bounce back. We'll see how things Shake up tomorrow. Right now, today, stocks were higher but sold off after President Trump said he'll be giving a news conference tomorrow on China. With that, the Dow fell nearly 150 points. It had been up 210 at one point. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq 
each snapped three-day win streaks. Financials gave back some of their recent gains. Citigroup down 6%. Bank of America and Goldman Sachs were down 4%. A new wave of optimism from America's CEOs on this very network today. Here is their view from the top. When you go to retail, generally clothing and things like that, it's been interesting. We've we've seen spending on clothing stores up 50% month over month. So people are starting to broaden out their spending again. It's interesting across the, you know, the items people need, uh, whether it's cooking at home or buying a comforter for their kid's bedroom. Uh, Those are the types of things that we're seeing an upsurge now in. It's shifted away from essentials. I think in America right now, we're certainly seeing a, a rural revitalization. We're seeing kind of the summer of your home and the summer of your backyard. Uh, We're seeing uh, people embracing sustainable living. What this environment has done is really accelerate it into their almost logical conclusion because instantaneously, every business globally has realized that they have to be able to run in the cloud. They have to be able to run digitally, even in an environment where offices reopen. In my opinion, the world will not get back to you know kind of the past normal until we have a clear medical solution. Preferably a vaccine, but and a very effective therapeutic it would be as well. I am actually incredibly optimistic and encouraged because my belief very strongly is that if you can navigate through the last 90 days, you can navigate through anything. That's Mark Benioff rounding out our CEOs tonight. The coronavirus has created an atmosphere of fear and uncertainty, a perfect environment for scam artists. CNBC's Andrea Day introduces us to a FBI section chief tonight working around the clock to track down the criminals behind COVID-19 scams. This is where we usually find FBI section chief Stephen Merrill. But now, like many of us, he's working from home. I'm working longer hours than ever. Uh, because uh, we have to keep on top of these scams. And the business at hand is clear. Attack these criminal schemes related to the COVID-19. There's never been a shortage of greed and the criminal's ability to highlight these stressful times and our vulnerability is certainly apparent. Merrill says that hundreds of coronavirus scams are pouring in every day. The newest scheme we've seen is what we call advanced fee schemes. In this one, he says, criminals are targeting government agencies who are desperate for personal protective equipment. They're claiming that they can produce, in many cases, millions of masks. The state governments are sending large millions of dollars of money uh, in anticipation of getting these masks. That he says, in many cases, never arrive. And that's not the only scheme. The feds already charging this guy after he posted videos online claiming he developed a cure for coronavirus. I created the cure that shuts down the COVID-19. Investigators say Keith Middlebrook solicited investments in a company he claimed would be used to market his so-called cure. And his video posts on Instagram and YouTube racked up over 2 million views. According to the complaint, seven individuals had invested with Middlebrook with an average investment of 750 to 1 million. An attorney for Middlebrook did not respond to CNBC's request for comment. The FBI also warning about a rise in counterfeit schemes. We're seeing people that are peddling testing equipment as well as you know medicines themselves. Customs and Border Protection officers recently seizing loads of counterfeit cold and flu meds, along with thermometers and hand sanitizers. That's what worries me most 
is that people are trying to defraud us by giving us medicine that could hurt us or our families. Andrea Day, CNBC. Here's what's coming up tonight. Next, an industry moving into its busiest time of the year at exactly the wrong time. Before the break, our world on the 151st day of the coronavirus crisis. The Kramer COVID-19 Index, up today despite the market sell-off. Today's leading components, Livongo Health, Moderna, Viva Systems, Regeneron, Massimo. Watch Mad Money, 6 p.m. Eastern. Tonight, one company that's inside people's homes during what is already a stressful time, moving day. The co-founder tonight and president of College Hunks, a $130 million a year moving company, is Nick Friedman. He is with us live tonight as the moving industry moves into its busiest time of the year. Nick, it's good to see you. The busiest time of the year normally, of course. What about now? Yeah, so May is typically the busiest move month. Uh, Usually the last weekend of May is the busiest move weekend. Uh, You know, we were expecting a record season for our 130 franchise owners and independent business owners all across the country. Uh, April, we saw about a 30% decline year over year when we were expecting to be a 30 to 40% year over year growth. May, that margin has has improved a little bit. We're actually only down 10% year over year compared to 2019 numbers. So we're actually feeling very fortunate uh, that we're still able to operate as an essential business. People are still moving. People are still having junk hauled away, but it's certainly not the busy season uh, that our franchise owners were, were all anticipating. What have you had to do uh, as a result of just what's been going on in the overall environment to keep either the, the money coming in or keep your employees around? So a couple of things we've done, uh, obviously safety and trust and care for our clients is the most important thing. So uh, following CDC guidelines with protective gear, masks, and uh, gloves, sanitizing our trucks uh, on a nightly basis, doing basically socially distanced estimates as well as virtual estimates. We also added uh, express driveway pickups where we can uh, pick items up off the, off the driveway if people don't want us in their homes. And the other thing we did with our excess capacity, because we've always been a very purpose-driven, socially conscious organization, and because we had excess uh, availability of our trucks and labor, we started offering free moves Uh, for domestic violence victims uh, who are maybe stuck in situations that they wouldn't be able to get out uh, because of the sheltering in place order. So uh, really just evolving, adapting, and and trying to remain as uh, nimble as possible during these unique times, I think, has been critical for us. Interesting. I'm reading you had a big jump in franchisee inquiries. Yeah? We did. You know, what's interesting is there's actually usually a bit of an inverse relationship between the employment market and interest in franchising because uh, you know, when the employment and the economy is a little bit more uncertain, uh, the idea of starting a business for yourself, going into franchising, which allows you to be in business for yourself but not by yourself, 
uh, becomes a less risky proposition. Uh, our model is a very uh, sort of good, solid income replacement type of franchise opportunity for individuals. And so we've seen a really increase uh, in interest in franchise opportunities. We actually awarded seven new franchises in April, which was a record for any we've ever had, uh, five or six new franchises coming on board in May. And you know, small business and franchising in particular is really the backbone of our economy. Uh, so that's something that we really need to try to continue to embrace and support uh, to make it through this to help build our economy back uh, into the uh, the success that we've had in, in most recent years. It's a very interesting anecdote. We need to continue to follow uh, that story, even as it relates to other businesses that, that have franchises. What is the current state of your business financially? You, you did get a PPP loan, correct? We did. We were fortunate as a, as a franchisor to, to land our PPP loan, and we made sure that all of our independent franchise owners as well, about 75 percent of them at this point, uh, have gotten approved and or funded uh, for that loan, uh, which is critical because, you know, usually our franchise owners burn through a lot of their cash reserves during the, the winter months, gearing up for a really busy spring and summer season. Uh, and with the demand being a little bit leveled off relative to what we were expecting, uh, the cash flow is going to be a lot tighter. Keeping our staff employed is going to be a lot more difficult. And so we were very grateful and, and fortunate to uh, land those loans. And, and now hearing some of the news that's coming out about possibly the extension uh, of the requirements to be able to get forgiveness on those loans uh, has been really critical to keeping our franchises, uh, you know, trucks rolling and, and keeping their staff employed. Good to hear. Wish you well. We'll check in with you Thank again. You. That's Nick yeah, Friedman joining so us tonight. College Chunks, the co-founder and the president down in Tampa for us. Top headlines in tonight's restaurant check is next. As you know, each night we call attention to America's restaurants operating throughout this crisis. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can even send a picture and we will put it up on TV like we are doing now. Tonight, we salute the Kebab House Mediterranean Grill in Bloomingdale, New Jersey. Mateo's of Roslyn in Roslyn Heights, New York. Campisi's Restaurant in Dallas, Texas. Mozart's Cafe in Columbus, Ohio. And the Deli Palace in Flagstaff, Arizona. We appreciate and salute all of you. On day 151 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. More than 2 million more Americans filed for unemployment last week, making it nearly 41 million in the past 10 weeks. The economy shrinks 5% in the first quarter of the year. That is worse than expected. Stocks snapped their winning streak, the Dow falling nearly 150 points. Futures right now, we'll show you quickly. Obviously, it is early, volumes light, and the picture is mixed. You can go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information all night long on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange, 7 p.m. for markets and turmoil. I'll see you on the half tomorrow. Stay well. Shark Tank is coming up. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. 
for the love of home.